The word of the Lord from Philippians 4, 4 through 8. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. During the month of December, my entire existence, every waking hour, is devoted to buying presents for my children. At least that's what my kids think. Between Thanksgiving and Christmas Day, every move, every phone call, every conversation I have with Maggie, my kids think that I am scheming for presents. The other day, Lucy came in from the garage and interrogated me about a big box next to the washing machine. It was dog food. I don't think she believed it. Maggie and I went out for coffee the other morning while kids were Zoom schooling, or did we? Uh, As a parent, this obsession with our movement, it's funny and it's delightful and it's instructive to us grumpy adults. At Christmas, and always, children expect good things from their parents. And that expectation leads them to interpret the entire world differently than we do. Everything, including boxes of dog food, might be a gift. And that heightened sense of expectation contributes to a heightened sense of joy so that the promise of future joy brings them joy today. Today is Gaudete Sunday, the third Sunday of Advent. Gaudete means rejoice. It is Rejoice Sunday, and it's a unique Sunday for Advent. And we know it's unique because the liturgical color for today shifts ever so slightly from a deep purple, which is the typical color of Advent, to a soft pink. We use an Advent wreath in our home, and most of the candles are purple, but the third candle for this week is always pink. And that's because purple is traditionally a color that symbolizes repentance and heaviness. It's about longing and mourning and loss, fasting. It's both the color of Advent and the color of Lent which is the other heavy season in the Christian calendar. And these are both seasons focused on what we need and don't have. But in both Advent and Lent, there is a break midway through. Gaudete Sunday for Advent, Laetare Sunday for Lent, and both of these are Latin words for rejoicing. And on these Sundays, the church pauses its focus on heaviness and emphasizes rejoicing. It's stuff like that that make me so impressed with the Christian calendar. I just really love it. It is so pastorally wise. First, because God knows we can only handle so much heaviness in our spirituality. We can't mourn all the time. We can't yearn all the time. We need a break. We need lightness in our life. But more than that, in Gaudete Sunday, we acknowledge that the world is not entirely dark. Advent is about Jesus as a coming light, but there is light now, even though it's not Christmas yet, even though Jesus has not come back yet, even though there is still so much evidence of sin and death all around us and in us. In the pink candle, 
we see how the light of Christ is already shining through and overcoming the darkness. It's not all purple in the world. There is reason today to rejoice. And like my kids on the hunt for Christmas presents, there is also joy remembering that Jesus is coming soon. It's almost Christmas. It's almost time. And the promise of future joy should bring us joy today. Today we're going to talk about joy because it's the Sunday of joy in Advent. What is it? Where do we find it? What does it say? What does it mean? After 2020 especially, in a sad and hard time, joy is really important, especially for the Christian. For the disciple of Christ, joy is an imperative. It's a command, an obligation. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It's a double command. Rejoice always. There's no room for exception here. Always rejoice in whatever circumstance we're in. Paul is writing to a persecuted church, and quite likely an impoverished church. By the world's standards, there are no doubt lots of reasons for them to not rejoice, but Paul actually connects their joy to reasonableness. It would be unreasonable for the Philippian Christian to not rejoice. Verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Why is rejoicing reasonable? Because the Lord is at hand. Christ is near. He is coming soon. And in that case, joy just makes sense. Therefore, rejoice. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. Let's pray and ask God to teach us the reasonableness of joy. Dear Father, I am thankful for this uh, pink Sunday in the month of Advent, uh, that you and the early church knew that we could not spend every day of our lives, we couldn't even spend a whole month in mourning, in longing, but we needed a break. We needed to lift our heads up in hope. And we do that this morning. We remember that you came, uh, you are here, and you are coming again. And so would you help us as a church to be reasonable and rejoice? Father, all of us come this morning with difficulties and hardships, um, hundreds of reasons to not rejoice. Hundreds of uh, reasons for sadness and for anxiety and for frustration and anger. But would you uh, help the light of Christ to shine so brightly that it would overwhelm the dark, uh, the deep purple of our lives and would uh, give us cause to rejoice. Uh, teach us what joy is and convince us that uh, we should be rejoicing. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So what is joy? Joy has been debated for thousands of years. Uh, philosophers from Aristotle to C.S. Lewis have thought deeply about joy, and usually they've sought to distinguish it from happiness. So that happiness is more bound up in circumstances and experience, while joy connects to something deeper. I think we can all understand that distinction, and we intuitively know that there is a difference between happiness and joy, but it's really hard to pin down because they feel similar, both by experience and observation, and so surely they're related to each other. 
it's just hard to know how to describe it. Uh, as I was thinking this week and trying to come up with a definition for joy, it, it's funny how humans are very good at nuancing their negative emotions. Like we can drill down very precisely to the why we feel bad, whether it's grief or sadness or anger or rage. Like we have so many words, uh, but we're not good at nuancing positive emotions. Uh, why is that? Um, I really don't know. I, I can't wait for heaven when we will spend an eternity experiencing and exploring positive emotions. Uh, but what is joy? Uh, I can't say with any certainty. I'm not going to improve on the centuries of uh, definitions that people have pursued. But as I thought about it this week, I think we can at least say this. Joy is happiness that is more than the sum of its parts. Joy is a happiness that is more than the sum of its parts. Uh, not less than. The ingredients are essential, but joy is more than. A happiness that is deeper than what's obvious. Uh, picture a Christmas cookie. What if I offered you a chocolate chip cookie, but instead of a cookie, I gave you a bowl full of mashed up ingredients? Uh, even though all the parts are there, it would not be the same. Uh, joy is like this cookie, where there's this beautiful combination of ingredients, which come miraculously together to become vastly more than the sum of its parts. Uh, picture a piece of music. Beethoven's Fifth Symphony isn't just a pile of notes thrown together. It's not just a collection of instruments playing independently. It's not less than those notes. It's not less than those instruments, but it is so much more infinitely more. And this is how the entire cosmos works. A piece of art, a poem, a championship, a marriage, childhood, everything, everything in this world is wondrously, miraculously more than the sum of its parts. That's what makes it wonderful. A flower, an eye, a smile, laughter, a baby's hiccup, these all bring joy that is, that is more than can be explained by the thing itself. I've been blessed with a son who loves to have fun, who thinks the only things worth doing are things which produce joy. And it can be annoying sometimes uh, because he doesn't want to do anything hard. But it's such a gift, especially because he delights in the smallest things. I'll be typing on my keyboard. And he'll say, I love that song. Can you keep typing? I could listen to it all day. And he means it. He will just sit there and listen to the sound of typing and be delighted by it. And he always wants to share what he loves with you. With you. Um, the other day, he asked me, he said, can I play with you my favorite ringtone on your phone? And so he got my phone and he played it. And it's just this little tiny ditty. And he just had a big smile. He just loves little things, small things bring him more satisfaction than they should. That's joyful living. That's reasonable living because the world is truly wonderful. This fullness in the world is why modern atheism, uh, materialistic naturalism, is unbelievable. If the world is just a bunch of moving parts, then it's hard to account for most of our experiences in the world. Uh, we can explain mechanics and materials, but we cannot explain the forms and ends of things. Goodness and beauty and romance and laughter and justice. These deeper things have to be more than physical. 
the things which matter most to human beings make little sense if we are merely our biology, chemistry, and physics. Materialistic naturalism claims that reality is only found in what is physical, observable material. But if that's the case, how do we account for joy? For the consistent atheist, joy is simply a word we use for a complex of physical sensations. And this is not what Christians believe about joy. It's honestly not what anyone believes about joy, even your typical atheist, even if that's entailed by their beliefs. But in 2020, is this not often how we pursue joy? Do we not think about joy in mostly materialistic, naturalistic terms? So that we're not after happiness that is more than the sum of its parts. Parts is just fine. Physical pleasure, just fine. Financial security, that's perfect. It's as if I'm saying to God, I don't want to wait for the cookie. I don't want to work for the cookie. Just give me the pile of ingredients. I'll eat that. But joy requires that we bake the ingredients of life into something more. Now, I do want to be clear that the ingredients are important. I'm just going to go all in on the cookie analogy, so you have to forgive me. I'm going to keep going with it. But ingredients to joy are important. Joy is more than the ingredients, but it is not less than. It's not enough for me to just give you the idea of a cookie. Your taste buds require an actual material, natural cookie with actual ingredients. Sometimes Christians will over-spiritualize joy so that joy is a happiness that is completely independent of the material world, that's completely independent of circumstances. But that's not possible because we ourselves are material beings. We are historical beings, spiritual too, of course, but also material, historical, uh, placed people. The future we long for is not an eternal choir of ghosts. It's a new earth. The wedding supper of the Lamb is a real supper. Uh, Jesus is going to be there. We're going to be without sin, and that's going to be great, but it's also going to have food that will be delicious. Joy requires certain ingredients, so I don't want you to hear me say that your circumstances are unimportant, that your hardship doesn't matter. Jesus never says that. Quite the contrary, he spends much of his ministry addressing hard circumstances, undoing barriers to joy in people's lives. Paul never denies the importance of the material either. What he does say, though, is that Christian joy is derived not only from our present experience, but is also a product of our past and our future. Joy considers past, present, and future, and it considers them proportionally, so that our present momentary suffering cannot be compared to the glory that is to be eternally revealed in us, Romans 8.18. The reason we can rejoice always, even in suffering, is because the Lord is at hand, because a future glory will be revealed in us. And that glory will outweigh my present suffering. His nearness invades my present. His promise of redemption gives me strength. And this guaranteed reality leads us to reasonable joy. In a broken world, joy is not only hard to experience because of our own suffering, It can also be a source of guilt because of the suffering of others. 
we ask ourselves, is it right for me to rejoice when so much hardship is going on in the world? Hardship which I might be entangled in, I might be benefiting from as a privileged uh, Western citizen. When I was thinking about my definition of joy being a happiness that is more than the sum of its parts, it occurred to me that this understanding of joy is similar to the experience of grief, which is a sadness that is more than the sum of its parts. I saw this week that uh, recent daily COVID deaths, uh, they make up eight out of the 10 deadliest days in American history. And that's a wild fact. Uh, It's not just a fact though, it's not just a number. There is a grief behind that number that is more than dead bodies. Uh, Individually, those numbers represent people. Those numbers represent families. And then when you assemble a list of the 10 deadliest days in American history, you realize that those numbers compare to 9-11 and Pearl Harbor and the 1906 earthquake. And it saddens us to think that this is where we are eight months later. This list is not just a number. We live in a world marked by grief that is more than the sum of its parts. How can we talk about joy in the face of so much loss? Well, Philippians 4.4 still stands. It was written to a persecuted church. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And not only that, verse 5 stands, reminding us that Christian joy is reasonable because the Lord is still at hand. Living joyfully is living truly. And I'll go further and say that living joyfully is living justly. Joy is just. We are a church that cares deeply about justice. And if that's the case, we must also be a church that cares about joy. One of our church's distinctives is feasting with the poor, taken from Luke 11. Feasting is a joyful word, and that's on purpose because joy is just. But how can we rejoice in the face of so much sadness? There's a poem by the American poet Jack Gilbert called A Brief for the Defense, and it's worth reading for help here. He begins, Sorrow everywhere, slaughter everywhere. If babies are not starving someplace, they are starving somewhere else, with flies in their nostrils. But we enjoy our lives because that's what God wants. There's a biting cynicism in this poem. At least it begins that way. But it begins to disentangle that cynicism as it moves on. And so let's keep working through the poem. Otherwise, the mornings before summer dawn would not be made so fine. The Bengal tiger would not be fashioned so miraculously well. The poor women at the fountain are laughing together between the suffering they have known and the awfulness in their future, smiling and laughing while somebody in the village is very sick. There is laughter every day in the terrible streets of Calcutta and the women laugh in the cages of Bombay. And so this poet 
Mr. Gilbert is juxtaposing the real hardship and suffering experienced in the world and people's pure laughter and joy. How do they hold together? And he says why they hold together. He says, if we deny our happiness, resist our satisfaction, we lessen the importance of their deprivation. We must risk delight. We can do without pleasure, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. Jürgen Moltmann, the theologian, uh, mid-20th century, he wrote, Joy in life's happiness motivates us to revolt against the life that is destroyed and against those who destroy life. And grief over life that is destroyed is nothing other than an ardent longing for life's liberation to happiness and joy. Otherwise, we would accept innocent suffering and destroyed life as our fate and destiny. Compassion is the other side of the living joy. And so Montmont is saying that joy drives compassion and that grief drives joy. They should support each other. And so that's why Paul is right to encourage us in Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. In making time and space for joy, we are actually speaking truth to power. We are living reasonably. We are clear-eyed. God is king. God is good. God is generous. He is active. He has come. He is here. He is coming. And we will not give Satan the satisfaction of our despair. We will not praise the devil with our attention. We will pay God attention and thank him for his gifts. We will enjoy his gifts. We will rejoice. Riffing on Augustine, another author writes, He loves thee too little, who enjoys not thy gifts. He loves thee too little who enjoys not thy gifts, which thou hast given to enlarge our minds and expand our hearts and enrich our souls and increase our strength that we might love thee fully and supremely and expansively forever. On this third Sunday of Advent, will you allow the light of Christ to turn your purple days and thoughts pink. Yes, there are griefs that are more than the sum of their parts. There are deep pains and sorrows that are not easily reversed. But Christ is risen, and by the power of his resurrection, even those griefs can be turned into life. Do not be ashamed of joy this Christmas. Do not be ashamed of joy in a pandemic during a recession while the nation feels like it's being ripped apart. Do not be ashamed to be the child who thinks that every movement from his heavenly father is him sneaking off to bless you. Even that box in the garage, even if it is dog food, is a good gift in God's hand because God is always good. Do not be ashamed, do not doubt, do not think joy an act of denial. It is an act of reason to choose joy. It is an act of justice to choose joy. Your joy is reasonable and just. 
we must, as Christians, risk delight. How are you risking delight this season? Not settling for cheap pleasure, not settling for a bucket of ingredients. What is the fuller happiness available to you today? Joy is happiness that is more than the sum of its parts. It is happiness that cannot be quantified, measured, parsed out. It is miraculous. It is the goodness of God shining through. I used to think that sad things were inherently more spiritual and important than happy things. And so I'd watch sad movies and read sad books and sad articles, share sad stories, make sad choices, because I thought that was the godly way. It's always more meaningful to be sad than happy. But that's not true. Miroslav Volf writes, In choosing between meaning and pleasure, if we feel like we have to choose between meaning and pleasure, we always make the wrong choice. Pleasure without meaning is vapid. Meaning without pleasure is crushing. In its own way, each, meaning and pleasure, is nihilistic without the other. But we don't have to choose between the two. The unity of meaning and pleasure which we experience as joy, is given with the God who is love. The unity of meaning and pleasure, which we experience as joy, is given with the God who is love. That's really what joy is. The best definition of joy, the experience of the unity of meaning and pleasure found in God. How can you take what's pleasurable this Christmas and find meaning in it? How can you take what's meaningful this Christmas and find pleasure in it? The pink, the pink Advent candle is also called the shepherd candle because the shepherds are known for rejoicing. In Luke 2, it tells us the story. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Why were they rejoicing? Because this was more than a baby. This was a baby indwelled by the eternal Son of God, God and man together, more than the sum of his parts. Jesus is the ultimate joy, justifying all other smaller joys. Prior to Jesus, we knew the world's existence, power, and goodness was animated by God, but we rejected 
his animation. Romans 1.20 teaches that ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature has been clearly perceived. Nothing exists apart from him and everything points to him. In our sin, we shut our eyes to this glory and cut ourselves off from his goodness. But God has continued to pursue us. He sends rain on both the unjust and the just. He gives life to all people for his time that his kindness might lead to repentance. But in Jesus, we have the supreme revelation of himself. In the incarnation, R.T. France writes, God no longer simply told his people about himself or even showed them by his actions. He came himself and walked among them, and men saw the invisible, God in a human body, the ultimate anthropomorphism. To hear Jesus is to hear the word of God. To see Jesus is to see the character of God. To watch Jesus in action is to see God in action. 1 John 4, 9, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. To be so loved should bring us great joy, joy which overwhelms all our sadness, joy which lightens and colors our every day, Yesterday, for Advent, our family sang Angels from the Realms of Glory about this scene from Luke 2 and the shepherds. And its call to praise is worth closing with, so I'm going to close and then pray. Angels from the realms of glory, wing your flight o'er all the earth. Ye who sang creation's story now proclaim Messiah's birth. Shepherds in the fields abiding, watching o'er your flocks by night. God with us is now residing. Yonder shines the infant light. Sages, leave your contemplations. Brighter visions beam afar. Seek the great desire of nations. You have seen his natal star. All creation, join in praising God the Father, Spirit, Son. Evermore your voices raising to the eternal three in one. Come and worship, come and worship, worship Christ, the newborn King. Let's pray.